0: Hello and welcome to the Scripps and Scribes podcast, I'm your host Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, ScriptsandScribes.com, and be sure to check out the Writers Guild Foundation event, Writers on Writing, with the staff of Marvel's Jessica Jones, Tuesday, June 21st, where writers and producers from the hit Netflix series, Marvel's Jessica Jones, talk about the intricacies of building Jessica's world and their own paths to building a career as a writer. Details are available on the Writers Guild Foundation website at WGFoundation.org. But first, we have on the show today a comic book and TV writer whose work includes Green Lantern, Generation X, and various X-Men, Superman, and Captain Universe titles. He's also the creator of numerous image comic series such as Noble Causes, which follows the lives of a wealthy family of superheroes, and the sci-fi western series Copperhead, described as Deadwood in Space, of which multiple Eisner-winning writer Brian K. Vaughn raved, his favorite new comic of 2014. He's also a writer and executive story editor on CBS's drama series Zoo, which is based on James Patterson's thriller novel about a rash of mysterious animal attacks around the world and the investigation of the increasingly coordinated and violent outbreaks, the second season of which premieres June 28th on CBS 89's Central. Central. Uh, welcome to the show, Jay Ferber. Thanks for coming on, Jay.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, we always like to begin with how you got your start in the industry, sort of what inspired it, mm-hmm. uh, what sort of training and preparation did you undergo? Yeah, I, uh,
1: I broke into comics long before television. Right. Uh, I started, I so mean, as a in, like, kid.
0: 98?
1: Yeah, 98, I think, was my first published comic book stuff. Uh, as a kid, I just loved stories. I loved comic books, I loved TV, uh, movies, uh, movies. And always wanted to tell stories. I I thought I wanted to be a comic book artist, so for a long time I would write and draw my own comics in high school. Uh, I was an art major in college for a couple years. uh, And then quickly realized that I really preferred writing. That was the form of storytelling that I liked. Uh, And then uh, in in college I just took creative writing classes. I I didn't go to film school or anything like that. Um, And then in terms of breaking into comics, I really again late 90s just kind of broke in the what I would call the old fashioned way of of just sending in written pitches through right. the snail mail like like a stamp all that uh into various editors at Marvel and DC and these pitches were for uh like B and C level characters who didn't have a book like here's a mini you could do about Bronze Tiger or right. whoever and uh that got me some feedback and some attention and uh I finally kind of got a foot in the door um, with an editor at Marvel named Frank Pitarisi who gave me a, a shot writing an issue of Marvel's What If. Uh, the book was being canceled right. and it was an anthology so every issue was by a different writer and so they assigned me the last issue because literally I couldn't break anything. <laughs> the book was already over. Right. Uh, so I wrote that and then that went pretty well and then he gave me a fill-in issue on Generation X and then from there... I took over the series, and then it was just a matter of kind of staying in the business and, uh, um, you know, broadening my uh, contact list of editors, that right. sort of thing. I moved to New York so that I could be closer to the action and, you know, go and have lunch with editors and wander the halls and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I did that for, I guess, over ten years. I think I, I made the jump to TV in twenty ten. Uh, I, I guess. I'd always loved television. Mm-hmm. Wanted, was intrigued by it, but at the same time, I didn't want it to be ruined for me. I didn't want writing for television to ruin my enjoyment of it. So I was kind of hesitant to to try to make the jump, and I also wasn't sure how I would do because comics is so solitary for the most part. I mean, you write stories on your own, you communicate with your artist and your editor and stuff, but it, the writing itself television is much more collaborative because of the writer's room and I wasn't sure how I'd do with that. I was like, I don't know if I can sit in a room all day with other writers. Uh, But my friend Brian Vaughn was working on Lost at the time and I would hear his stories of the writer's room and and I just decided that I couldn't, that I would regret it if I didn't give it a shot and I applied to all the writing programs that the studios have. The NBC has Writers on the Verge, Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers has their workshop. the ABC Disney Fellowship did all that and ended up getting into Warner Brothers I was living in Seattle at the time Uh, as far as I in in that year at least I was the only guy who got in who didn't already live in LA so I had to make it abundantly clear to them if I get in I'll move down here right that's what happened I got in and I literally moved down here like the week after to be here in time for the first class and uh from there, got staffed on Ringer right out of the workshop, and from there, it's just been a series of staff jobs.
0: Right. Um, actually, you actually <clears throat> just now led me to two other questions. The first being, you had mentioned that you didn't want to work in TV mm-hmm. and have that affect your love of TV. How did it work in comics?
1: In in comics, it did... Uh, I still love comics, but it did right. change the way... Sure. I mean, once you see behind the curtain, it, it definitely... Uh, affects your enjoyment of it, right? Uh, and but not not it didn't ruin my enjoyment of it. It just affected it. I mean, there were you know uh, comics that uh, boy even if it's like ah uh, you know that that writer I, I know that guy he's a jerk. I don't want to read that book. Right. Whereas <laughs> you know if I hadn't worked in the industry, I probably wouldn't know that or uh, or or just you know oh that. This storyline, I know they're doing because of an editorial mandate to have this event, to put this in place. And it's just seeing how the sausage gets made uh, has has just changed the the lens through which I look at comics, I guess. Sure. Uh, And in television, that's happened as well. Um, And I guess it may have affected, it may impact my enjoyment of current shows. Mm -hmm. But I still love going back and watching older shows that for some reason retroactively haven't been corrupted, I guess. Right. Uh, uh, but but in either case, I mean, I still read plenty of comics and still devour television. Uh, right. So it hasn't really ruined it. In fact, I think I watch more TV than a lot of my peers in television. Yeah, we I'm, hear that I'm a lot. A, I'm a
0: pretty... Pretty rabid TV watcher. Now, is most of that for enjoyment, or is most of that for? uh, I I would say no. Most of it's most of it's enjoyment, Uh,
1: and especially now that I'm I'm working on Zoo. I mean, we're on hiatus now, Uh, but I'm not doing staffing. If I was doing staffing, I'd be watching whatever shows I was meeting on, or you know, had been written by people I was meeting with, that kind of thing. Uh, But. Even meetings, taking out of the equation, I still watch a lot of TV just for enjoyment. I mean, right. It's just my... I've always been more of a TV guy than a movie guy in terms of I like serialization and, and stories that can play out, characters that you can continue to live with week after week. So it's I'd always gravitate more towards television than movies for that reason. Right. and That's why I prefer comics as right. well, that exactly. it's that whole ongoing saga thing.
0: And it's actually kind of interesting that we live in a day and age now where you could binge watch stuff. So oh, yeah. if you're meeting on a show, yep. you can go back and watch whatever, find yeah. whatever yeah. easily whereas 20 years ago, yep. 10 years ago maybe even might have been more difficult. You'd have to go to totally. you know, uh, video archives, videot's or yeah. some of these cinephile, one of these video stores that has VHS or DVDs right. of, of whatever show you wanted to watch. Exactly. And rent exactly. Them, so. Well, and
1: also in the I mean, nowadays shows are so much more serialized. I sure. mean, in the old days, I don't think you would have had to have watched That's every true. episode. Because they're Very all, true. it's a procedural. We watch a handful. and uh, But I know, you know, a, a couple, we got a couple new writers on Zoo in the second season. And because the show's on Netflix, they were able to just watch all 13. Right, absolutely. You know, before they started the show and or before they met on it, probably. Uh, which is cool. It's a great time to, to be able to
0: do that. Yeah. And but there's so much more material out there oh, yeah. I think to keep up with too. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, for sure. So I mean it's it's really uh I just watch what I like. Sure. Uh and then if I have a meeting on a show, sure, I'll I'll dive in and
0: do my homework right now. Yeah. And the next question that I had come up with with basically what we were talking about before mm-hmm. was because we get this a lot. Writers aspiring writers asking do i need to be in la and -hmm. managers waffle on it most say yes or it helps very much to be so Mm -hmm. in la uh for feature writers because it helps to take meetings you're going to take a ton of meetings before you ever get a job right but for tv it's even more so but maybe you can explain a little why it's important to be here it it totally is Uh, it's
1: it is just for the meetings and for the the socializing network of it all because right. i mean a lot of it for for good or bad is who you know and it's making those connections and it's it's uh you know if if you know your agent is putting you up for a show and one of your, you know one of your friends or a past colleague has worked with that showrunner or knows that showrunner you can make a call hey can you talk me up to this guy can you put a word in uh and that's stuff that can only happen when you live here. And uh, and even just to start, even if, I mean, because you can't wait to you get a job to move here usually. I mean, I didn't. The, the Warner Brothers Workshop is not a paid position, mm-hmm. as you know. It, it's all just a one-night-a-week kind of boot camp. Uh, but it's just, you got to be here to, uh, number one, it shows that you're serious about it. Um, trying to break into television remotely is, I don't know how many... You know, agents or producers or anybody who's really going to take somebody seriously who doesn't live here. Um, And in staffing season or or any point, like a meeting can pop up within hours notice. um, Right, absolutely. Of of just, you know, hey, they want to meet you today at 2 o'clock. Right. And they're calling you at eleven. <laughs> right.
0: You've got to get dressed and get changed and get over there and, and all that stuff. Uh, or even so. on the on the flip side, mm-hmm. you have a meeting and you fly into town for a week. Oh, yeah, long, and it gets pushed. And it gets yeah. pushed to the following. It happens yeah. all the time. You get Absolutely. pushed to the following week. Well, are you going to extend your stay? Mm-hmm. Are you going to come back? Mm-hmm. Because it happens all the time. Because they yeah. they to, to some to, I don't mean to be. Uh, so sort of harsh about it, but mm-hmm. they don't care that you're not here. They want yeah, you to either take the meeting or don't take the There's plenty of people meeting. who are Absolutely. here. Absolutely.
1: So yeah. Unfortunately, that's kind
0: of the... the totally. Of the and,
1: and in fact, if I remember right, when I flew down here, because to get into the workshop, uh, they did a round of interviews with like their the top candidates mm-hmm. There were, I think they ended up taking about 10 of us, but they interviewed 20. So I had to fly down here for the interview uh, and I just flew down for like a night and sure and i flew down the morning of the interview and i think i got into town and then got a call like oh they can't do 11 they want to do it at 3 now so oh okay so then i had to kill time and fight like it those things happen all the time all the time. Of, of just things getting rearranged and it's never a reflection on you or sure. it's just things happen during the day these guys have so many things going on in their lives and their in their work rather uh that yeah and so just being here just makes that so much easier
0: yeah and that's not to say that you can't make it from somewhere else, but it's right. exceptionally more difficult. I yeah. I mean
1: I, I know of writers who live uh elsewhere, like who live in New York, who have sold pilots sure. without moving out here. Right. But they still come out for like pitch season to, to do a round of pitches and everything and, and uh but I, I I honestly don't know of anyone personally who's ever gotten staffed who wasn't here. Living here already, right. Short of someone who didn't who was you know, a successful novelist or right or they or have but, but who, credit right or who something. has some previous uh, uh, reputation to trade on, right but, but somebody kind of coming in cold, so to speak. yeah uh, I've literally never heard of it happening to someone right. who didn't already live here or maybe in like Vancouver, where there's already a, a film industry
0: or something, right. yeah. And in features, it's slightly easier. Totally, it's still a difficult proposition if you're not here Mm -hmm. because it's harder to take meetings. But you can do it in features. Right. They're much managers and agents are much more inclined to take a feature writer who's not in LA than a TV writer, which is almost almost a non-starter. Yeah. Unless you just have the most amazing pilot in history, and they're going to tell you to move here anyway. Right. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Yeah. With
1: features, which I'm less familiar with, but with features, you can. As long as you're willing to fly out here for chunks of time, to, yeah, sure. to, to stay here for like two weeks and do a bunch of meetings and that right. sort of thing, and then go back to wherever you live and, and write, like that's doable as far as I know.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you about... Uh, what we? L.A. Mm-hmm. Coming to L.A. Um, what was that experience like for you making the move? Because you at least were a writer... Mm-hmm. Uh, professionally, comic book writer, mm-hmm. but I know a lot of people have jobs right, and, and, right uh, in other cities that aren't necessarily right. as transferable. Yeah, uh, yeah. What were some of the challenges that you faced, or what kind of advice was, would you have for that? Yeah, day? boy,
1: I'm trying to think of what <clears> how <throat> I because I mean I was in a unique position. I had I was writing comics, but I also had a day job in Seattle at the time. Uh, And so I had built up, in anticipation of getting this, you know, being optimistic, I had built up a nest egg, knowing that I would have to move down here. Um, And I had lived in L.A. briefly before. I lived down here for a couple years, around 2000. Um, And I had friends who lived here. My friend Brian lived here uh, in a small world. A girl I went to high school with in Pennsylvania lives out here and works in television. I ended up finding an apartment literally, like, Three doors down from where she lived, so she was able to help me, uh, you know, move in and find a place and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But I I was fortunate that I didn't have to find a job when I moved down here. I I had enough money between comic writing and the the nest egg I had saved to to get me through the workshop, hopefully to when I would get staffed. If I hadn't gotten staffed, I I don't know what I would have done at that point. Um, But uh, but it it is tough. I mean, you're going to have to. My advice for getting a day job when you're writing. I mean, there's two schools of thought: mine is get something that's not at all creative uh-huh. so that you're you know waiting tables during the day or or whatever that is, but it doesn't require any creativity so at night when you're working on your spec or whatever your your creative energies are still at capacity, whereas if you're taking a job where you where you're a copywriter or working in advertising or something, you're going to be using those creative muscles all day you're probably less likely to want to come home and work on a spec when you've been working those muscles all day long right. in your day job anyway. Uh, that's my advice on that front. I mean finding a job in this economy is easier said than done obviously. Sure, sure. Uh, and obviously a job writing advertising is going to pay more than waiting tables so there's right. that to factor in as well. But just in terms of your end game of of being a screenwriter, I would always lobby for the, the, the grunt day job so that you can devote as much of your time and, and energy to your writing as you can.
0: Right. Plus I think a couple of things. One, don't get a job that's soul sucking, something that you hate desperately because totally. then when, <clears throat> excuse me, you have your downtime, your time right. you're not working, you're just, right. <clears throat> excuse me, trying to recover from yes. the yep. soul sucking job that you have
2: mm-hmm.
0: or get a job that's, too good and i don't I'm, I'm trying to to find a way to describe that better but one where you're comfortable making a good living right. where it becomes right. easy to not right write because you're making good money yeah. maybe not great money but good money yeah the job's pretty comfortable mm-hmm. those are also sort of pitfalls because it becomes easy to not right work totally uh, right on your totally. own stuff because it's, it's it's a challenge
1: totally and the most common path and i i circumvented this but the most common path to, to getting a staff job is to start as a PA right. and, or as an intern and a PA and an assistant and, and climb that ladder on a show or in a writer's room or whatever. Uh, and that is a huge game of who you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, those, those, those jobs are so competitive uh, and they're so prized because they usually are. I mean, it's not uncommon for an assistant to get a script uh, right. during a season, that kind of thing, and then maybe get staffed the following year, sure. that sort of thing. Uh, so that's definitely the, the kind of the ladder to climb if you're lucky enough to be able to get your foot in the door at that very bottom level, you know, do whatever you can to keep it and get as much coffee and as much run as many stupid errands as they want you to, right. with a smile on your face and you know, just to to make yourself useful and and make them want to keep you around.
0: Right, and it's funny because we've had a number of uh, writers' assistants, showrunners' assistants, mm-hmm. as well as staff writers, all the way up to showrunners. Mm-hmm. On the show, and a lot of them have, have mentioned that it might actually be harder to get an assistant job just because of the lack of them yeah. than it is to actually get a staff writer it job. It might be, it <laughs> you might know, be, just yeah. because of the volume yeah. of, yeah. you know, the lack of those yep. assistant jobs out there. Yep. There's, you know, one show owner's assistant usually, right. maybe one writer's assistant, and a, maybe a writer's PA yeah. on a show yeah. where you, you know you might actually have more staff writers on a show than you do have assistants.
1: That's a very good point. And yeah, like I said, I didn't go that route. So my any of my advice or experience with that side of it is right. all like second hand like sure. I've witnessed it but I've never been in it like right. I it, I can't imagine
0: how hard those jobs are now I'm sure the it. jump to writer is staff writer is difficult
1: oh sure I mean every move in this right. industry is difficult to varying degrees yeah
0: right right yeah um, actually I thought of something else that I wanted to touch base on again which is the, the LA moving to LA mm-hmm. for TV writers uh, you shoot you shot the first season of Zoo in New Orleans. Yes. Uh, the second season in Vancouver. Yes. But oh, but the writer's room was... In L.A., in, in LA. Culver City. Right. Yes. So even if you live in New Orleans or now in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and you think, oh, well, Zoo shoots here, I can get a job as a writer. Right. The writers work in Yeah, New the LA. writers are in L.A. Yeah, it, right. it has no...
1: I mean, there, there are some shows that the writer's room is in New York. Very few, but yeah. And there are, and so. there yeah. are like... I've heard of Canadian co-productions where the writers' rooms are in Vancouver or Toronto, but then you know, you have to have uh, an equivalent of a green card to basically work there. <laughs> right. as, 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 an, as an American writer you right. have to have residency or, or some kind of special uh, uh, permission to, to be staffed up there. So that's a whole other ball of wax. But yeah, where a show shoots really... of the times the writers' rooms are in L.A.
0: Right. And I think also with the Canadian productions from what I understand, similar to the diversity programs here, Mm -hmm. you know, Canada has like that arts program. Right. I think where for newer writers especially that they're sort of subsidized by the Canadian government. So you're going to have even a harder time trying to get in because again, a new Canadian writer Right. I mean, if you're established already and you're right, shooting a right. show out there, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. But as a starting writer, I think it could be, you know, actually. Yeah, it difficult. might be. Yeah, I don't know how that works up there, but that's probably right. Um, let's t- go back to t- uh, comics for a little bit. Because, sure. uh And then we'll go back to to, t- to TV and Zoo and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, writing in comics, you, you see... Sent out your uh, samples mm-hmm. with the good old-fashioned snail mail, which is yep. uh, obviously done obviously by a lot email now. Yeah, by a lot. Yep, uh, by most people. Um, we've had questions in the past of what do you need to have to submit to editors mm-hmm. to get a job as a comic book writer. Uh, one of them I mentioned: do I, do I have to have a resume? What mm-hmm. format is it? Uh, how many script samples do I need? Right. Uh, should it be for established? Should it be original material? My own thing for image? Or how mm-hmm, does that mm-hmm. work? Uh, for, I
1: mean, there's a couple different ways to go about it. I think, and I'm kind of out of a loop on this, but so, in terms of like Marvel and DC, I don't even think they take unsolicited submissions anymore. Like, like, I don't think you could do it the way I did where you just send in a pitch. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is because of the internet, like, it's so much easier to make your own comic book mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, yes, you'd have to find an artist, you'd have to find a, a letterer, or you could teach yourself to letter it yourself. Uh, but I think the the best way to make comics these days, as flip as it sounds, is to just make comics. Right. Is, is to do it yourself. Whether you publish it yourself online, uh, or, or there are like small run printers you can use, that you can just print up 20 copies of your book and you know sell it at a convention or, or whatever. Uh, and, and then then you have a finished comic sure. that you can then, that's your, your resume, that's your calling card, whether you printed it yourself, whether you got it picked up at a very tiny publisher. The, the end result's the same. You have something in your hands that's produced by you that you can then show an editor. And that's something you can send to an editor at Marvel or DC, whether you hand it to them at a convention or whether you just snail mail it to them mm-hmm. uh, at their office. But I, I think there's a greater likelihood of them being receptive to that than to uh, a pitch for Spider-Man. So that's the, the internet has really opened that up. I mean, when I was breaking in, the internet existed, but there was no official DC Comics.com or Marvel.com yet. Uh, I remember the very, like the first year of my career, uh, editors had email addresses, but they weren't allowed to accept material through them. Mm. Even from writers they were working with. You oh, still wow. had to fax in or FedEx in your scripts. And it got to a point where editors would be like, can you email it to me? And then just fax it just, because that's the official chain. Right, but right. even they would rather just have it emailed. And it was, so it was an interesting time to watch that technology develop, whereas now it's all exclusively done Absolutely. over the internet. Right. Um, so, so yeah, the, the bottom line is like a resume isn't really relevant, I don't think. Um, I mean, unless you've done something extraordinary, you were a NASA scientist <laughs> right. and you're pitching a book about astronauts, something like that. Sure, right. Um, but it really is just about the work, and it's it's nothing sells you better than something you've written. Uh, and and you know, it, it's tough finding an artist for sure. That's a challenge that even established guys face trying to find artists to work with on their own projects. Uh but that's your biggest hurdle is finding somebody to draw your thing uh, and then then you have something to show
0: right and it's it is a big challenge especially because if you don't if you're not paying an artist right. you want to collaborate right most artists have their own ideas as right. well. And some of right. them, and, and a lot of them aren't writers though, which is the yeah. difference. Yes. But they don't necessarily know that mm-hmm. per se. Mm-hmm. So, and then a lot of writers view their work as proprietary, like this is right. my baby. Right. And right. so they're not willing to collaborate. Right. <clears throat> so you have that sort of Yeah, that's something to, that, th- 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 th-
1: yeah, because an artist is almost like an actor and a director combined. Right. In terms of of uh, they're bringing the visuals to life, uh, and my take—I mean, with Noble Causes, which is my first creator-owned oh, right. book—I mm-hmm. own that outright. Uh, the, none of the artists I work with own a piece of that.
2: Uh,
1: but so I also—you also paid, paid them. But, but I paid for work them. Yeah, it was work for hire, and some of them would get paid up front, but then as the book tapered off, they would have to wait to get paid in the back end once it once it went on mm-hmm. sale and made some money. Uh, every book I've done beyond that the artist has been a co-creator, they co own it with me. Uh and going forward, I mean that that's just how I choose to work. Sure. Uh, and I think it's it's an artist I think is more likely to be invested in the project if they own a piece of
0: it. Absolutely. And and not even
1: just and when I say own a piece of it, I don't even just mean that you're telling the story you want, but they they're have, in the copyright. Like, like and they get half the profits. And they or can or have whatever. the profits. But I would mean like let them contribute ideas to right, it. contribute like like don't you know if you're making your first comic don't be so precious about your own ideas and and loosen it up so that it's a true partnership and absolutely. and that that the artist that the more input you let an artist have and that you welcome and it's always it's it, it's only gonna help mm-hmm. uh, the better the project will be the the artist will be more uh, inclined to give it 110 percent than if you were treating him as like a drawing machine, where right. it's just, here's the script, here's exactly what I want you to draw. Oh, uh, and I'm not going to pay you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and exactly, and I'm hoping you do it for free, right. and that I own it, and I can use this to springboard right. onto and the And if it drinks. makes money, then I'll pay you for right. your time. Right.
0: Right. Um, on the plus side, nowadays we live in a world of like deviantart.com, you know, all these right. websites where right. you can see artists' portfolios and yes. make that connection and stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: And and you may find, as you said earlier, you know, artists who have their own ideas, but aren't exactly Absolutely. writers. There's nothing wrong with. I mean, especially if your goal is to use this comic as a as a, a calling card, kind of. You know, that your ultimate goal is to write Spider Man or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with going to an artist who has an idea. And helping him write his idea. Well, oh, absolutely. You know, even if the story Looking didn't the come direction. from you, you can still bring it to life. Put the words in the characters' mouths. And again, it's, a true, it's all about
0: collaboration. That's actually a path that I hadn't considered, which is actually brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: and it's a question of whether the artist likes the way you
0: interpret it. But sure. again,
1: it's a push-pull, it's a compromise, it's a collaboration.
0: Yeah. No, instead of getting an artist to help you with your work, as a mm-hmm. writer, go to help an artist with their
1: yeah. work. And, yeah. I mean and maybe
0: it could be, you know. And, and
1: uh, yeah, there, there's ways where that meets in the middle as well. Yeah, like, or you can help him with his and he can help you with your I mean right. right. Or or, or you to say work to, work to an artist, like, what would you like to draw? The artist is like, I've always wanted to draw a giant robots. Right. Oh, well, what if I did a story about a giant robot who was this and that and then, oh, that's cool, and then that becomes a whole Absolutely. thing. That's something that you guys created together. Right. It's, so it's I there's ways to do that
2: for
0: sure. Right. Right. Um Copperhead, Mm -hmm. like Deadwood in space, sci-fi western, very cool. Uh, What was sort of the inspiration?
1: The inspiration was was literally, I mean, in Deadwood in space I flatter myself to compare myself to Deadwood, Uh, I I, I, I grant you. Um, That was just a shorthand. It was, I've had the idea for years, and and it's not a new idea, I mean Firefly was Cowboys in space, Star Trek was Wagon Train in space. What I wanted to do with Copperhead that I thought was a little bit different. was number one, have lots of aliens, so it's much more visually diverse. Uh, and number two, whereas shows like Firefly and like Star Trek were, were shows about characters on a journey, where they were moving. Every, every week they were in a different place. You know, It was based around a spaceship. I wanted Copperhead to be a show set in a town so that the setting was stationary, but new characters would come in each story. You know, New characters would come to town and bring new story with them. And so right. I could play with it was it would be more like gunsmoke and that's why i chose deadwood cuz deadwood was a town mm-hmm. it would be more you know i wanted to have the sheriff i wanted to have the the town doctor the barkeeper the, the you know the uh, the blacksmith all of that stuff um, and, and do it with a sci-fi bent uh, and it was just just that just a, i didn't have characters i didn't have story yet it was just that kind of world and when i was talking to scott Godleski, the artist uh, we had originally talked about doing another idea that I just couldn't make work from a story point. Uh, and then I said, what about this thing about, you know, an alien town and, and it's like a western. It, it'd be like Deadwood but on an alien planet. And he was like, oh that's cool, I've always wanted to do a western. And then we just started shooting emails back and forth about, I remember talking about Jaws a lot, and I think that was from Scott, that, that our cop should be like Roy Scheider in Jaws, mm, right. just this this lone cop in this little town. And then one of us had the idea to make her a woman, and what if she was a single mom? And should she have a deputy? Yeah, what if the deputy thinks he should be the sheriff? And it, it just that was a, a real collaboration between the both of us, and it just grew and grew and grew into
0: this. I, I think what turned out to be a really cool book. No, absolutely. Um, and so, sort of, sort of segueing into uh, the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that comic book sort of entertainment. Sure, uh, different. Uh, Infrastructures, mm-hmm. but um, although with Marvel and DC, they're really not nowadays. Yeah, no, it's all combined. Uh, Copperhead, mm-hmm. how? I'm assuming that it's, it's you know, mm-hmm. it have if it hasn't already gone out to, you know, the we we've had discussions. Nothing's nothing's in active motion right now, but we're talking about it. Now, what what is the process like for something like, uh, you know, Noble Causes Copperhead when mm-hmm. we have? Uh, a comic book that's mm-hmm. been published or at least you have a physical how do you right. get that out there and what's the process like of getting it out there in the meetings the development process
1: it's it's. I can only speak to this so much because we haven't actually you know uh, truly set it up um, I think it's different you can go a couple different ways I mean the, the first question is whether I as the creator I'm going to write it myself or whether I'm just going to let my agents take it out and sure. attach a different writer.
0: Uh, although you have the advantage of at least you're a television writer. Right, right. That's
1: what I'm saying. I mean, yes, right. I have that option. A lot of, a lot of comic book writers don't. Yeah. Right. Mean, trying to attach themselves as a writer could be a deal breaker for right. a lot of studios or a lot of producers. Uh, although they've done it. Uh, sure. Jason Aaron and Jason Latour are writing a Southern Bastards pilot. Uh, neither of them, to my knowledge, had any TV experience, mm-hmm. but they were able to leverage that so that they're writing the pilot, which is awesome. Um, and and like Mark Miller at 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 Image, you know, he's all of his comics are becoming movies these days. Right. Uh, but he doesn't write any of them. He just writes the comics, sure. and then he he's a producer, and he gets writers to to flesh it out into a feature. Uh, with with my properties, it really kind of depends. There are some that I want to write myself. There are others that I'm more comfortable just saying like, yeah, you can go develop that. You know, just find another writer for that sort of thing. And then it's a matter, I I pitched Near Death, uh, another one of my comics, um, I guess two years ago now. And for that it was a matter of, uh, and and granted again I already have a a television resume so I could get meetings, uh, but my agent set it up, your first step is to go pitch it to producers, to pods, producers on deal is what that stands for. To go pitch it to producers, I pitched it, God, I want to say a dozen times at least. and I would go in with a like a 20 minute speech kind of. Um, I had visual references. I would come in with a copy of the graphic novel, leave that behind for them to keep. And then I had, I would just pitch the high concept for the book, the backstory, the characters, what the pilot story would be about, and then what the series would be about, kind of what the first season would be. Um, and as I'm pitching it, I'm throwing down uh, either photos of actors who would hypothetically play these roles. Uh, And then also some blown up images from the comics, from key points in the narrative that I'm pitching. Uh, And then once you get, I mean in a perfect world, you get multiple producers interested and you decide to go with the one that that you like best. Uh, No money is changing hands at this point. It's just getting a producer attached. From there, once you have a producer, then you go to, a lot of these producers have deals already with one of the studios. So you go to whatever studio they have a deal with, the producer brings you in and you pitch it with, the the producer will give you, will give like a little introductory spiel about you. you And oh, here's why we like Jay and here's his cool book and we're gonna let Jay pitch it to you. Then I do my spiel, which is very similar to what I pitch to the producers. But usually, sorry, in between those times, the producers will work with you on it a little bit. Like, what if we did this? Or what if, I mean, to to fine tune the pitch a little bit uh, for the, the studio you're pitching it to. Then it goes to the studios, uh, you pitch it there. Hopefully, somebody there bites. Uh, from there, and it's still, no money is changing hands. You get a studio attached, and then the, with the studio, you pitch it to the networks. And because of vertical integration, you know if you're pitching it to Universal, their first pl- place is going to be to take it to NBC, NBC sure. or to Sci-Fi or you know one of the channels that they want oh, to they own. Right. Um, and then it's not till a network buys it, generally speaking, that okay, now a deal is in place. A network is now going to pay you to write a pilot. Mm-hmm. And that's when money actually changes hands. Where you write a pilot and you get paid for that. Then, then you have a written pilot. Then they have to decide whether they're going to make the pilot or not. If they make the pilot, then more money changes hands. Then they have to decide if they're going to pick up the pilot. If they pick up the pilot, then more money changes hands. Right. Then you have a series. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole bunch of steps to, to go through. Uh, and a lot of it is just done on spec. Right. Now sometimes mm-hmm. in, in the changing landscapes, you'll have a, a studio that will pay you to write a pilot before you take it, that they're gonna finance it themselves, or they're just gonna, you know, you'll pitch it straight to series, to a, a distributor or whatever, and I don't even understand how a lot of these things work, but the, what I just laid out was the more traditional path to a network sure. television show. Uh, but with Sci-Fi Channel and with foreign investors and, and these smaller companies, there's dozens of other permutations of that way, but it all starts with going in and pitching it to a producer. Right. You know bottom line that's the first step and it's always a verbal pitch. that That's the a hard thing for I think a lot of writers to realize up front especially comic book writers is that so much of this is n- nobody in Hollywood wants to read anything basically. basically. Absolutely. They want to hear it. You, you it want to pitch it to them verbally. Right. They want to listen to it. Um, which always sounded so counterintuitive to me like can't I just write the pilot or <laughs> <and laughs> have I? them read it and tell like. But no, no, no. you got to pitch it. And I fought with my agents about that. I was like, I don't want to pitch it. Let me just write it on spec. I'm happy to write it on spec and they can read it. And they're like, you got to pitch it. And I'm glad they made me do it because it is like a valuable, necessary skill in this industry to be able to go into a room and with confidence and with vision pitch what this show is without it existing yet. Right. Ah. And it's cool. I mean, that, that's <clears throat> kind of the nutshell of how that works.
0: right? And I want to go back to pitching because I do want to touch base on that. Sure, that's, sure, sure. That's, sure. that's, that's yeah. an awesome subject. I went off we'll on a tangent there. No, no, no. That's perfect. Uh, but I did want to touch base on something that mm-hmm. I know a lot of uh, younger aspiring writers uh, have questions about. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of... Uh, plagiarism, of release forms mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing, especially when it's a, uh, something that, that you've developed, whether it's right. a, a pilot script, whether it's a comic book, mm-hmm. when you're going out there and putting your ideas out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people are paranoid of right. idea theft. And right. it does happen, but I think it's a lot more rare than you think really it is.
1: It's really rare. And I think a lot of times it's more coincidence than
0: theft. Sure.
1: I mean, there are... I mean, look at just this development season how many show how many networks have time travel shows right. like it was is just something in the ether that this past year people were hot to pitch time travel shows and i'm sure there were many more that were pitched that didn't get made uh and i don't think anybody stole anybody's there it was just something that happened uh so i've never in any of my dealings had to like ask for an nda or sign an nda or been worried about my ideas being stolen it just it's not that much of a concern i guess for people in the industry i mean frankly i know this sounds harsh and and judgmental but i think the people who are worried most about that are going to be looked at as amateurs as people who aren't really in it uh everybody else you just go and you pitch your idea ideas are a dime a dozen it's the execution Execution, of those ideas that are really what makes writers you could say I got a show about. I mean, the year that ER and Chicago Hope came out, you could sum up both those shows with the same set. Right. <laughs> it's set in a busy hospital in Chicago, but yet the shows are completely different. Right. But on paper, they could sound identical. So uh, who stole whose idea in this? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a DVD Kelly fan, but yeah. I'm also
2: uh, John,
0: John
1: Wells. Wells guy. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know but it's but, tough. It's yeah. tough. But but yeah, it, it it really I is is I, I get the concern. Uh... But I, I, I don't think it's something to really be worried about.
0: You know? Especially for uh, newer writers, because the amount they would have to offer you likely is probably not that much money for right, that. Right. When you're considering all the amount of money that goes into these shows, yeah. that to steal your idea because right. they don't want to give you a you know, hundred grand is yeah. really kind of foolish that yeah, a multi-billion exactly. dollar corporation would rather steal an idea right. and risk lawsuits and all this. Right.
1: And and they're really they're I mean these they're all people, they're very upfront about things right. I mean, when I was pitching near death, it was a comic book about a hitman, and some of the responses we got was, "Ah uh, we already have a hitman thing right like that's already we we just bought one from somebody else right. and whereas I could have been like, "Oh, let's take his hitman ideas and give them to the one we just bought right and let him do some of the stuff with it, but it it's just
2: yeah,
0: it, I, I think no though that problem. I have heard of a little bit, and it's, and right. it, it's, it's less nefarious, right? Where somebody pitching an idea mm-hmm. has a scene or something, character or mm-hmm. a certain story, something in there right. that the person listening may not even realize that. And then when they go to incorporate, they hey, mm-hmm. I had an idea of this, not realizing where it came mm-hmm. from, so that sort of idea that, bleeding. I, I, I could,
1: I, I could see that happening. I could also see happening when you're. Because if you're going in, and, and we may talk about this later, when, yeah. when you're going in on a staffing meeting on a show, I've heard writers talk about... I, I think there are some showrunners who want to hear ideas. Like They want to hear pitches. Sure. So you're going in to meet on the new season of Chicago Fire, and you, you pitch them an idea about, you know, what if we did an episode where a submarine catches on fire, and they all have to wear scuba tanks. And That's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they... You don't get the job. You don't. Get, they don't bring you on staff for whatever reason, but you've then given these guys a free idea sure. that, that they could then use. And I mean, you have no recourse. You don't own Absolutely. that. An idea is an idea. Uh, so I've, I've heard cautionary tales about that. About pitching, I actually pitching stories mm-hmm. when you're in a staffing meeting. Uh, I don't usually do that. I'll sometimes talk about thoughts, about characters. I mean, that that's kind of how those meetings usually work, about like, I like this character, and I'd love right. to explore this part of his personality, or, or this kind of thing. Uh, but I have heard cautionary tales about going in and pitching actual like pitches. On the other hand, I have a friend who's a showrunner who said he likes to hear ideas, because if they're good, then the showrunner, in his mind, is basically of the opinion of well, that guy just pitched me a great idea like i 've got to hire him now right i 've got to bring him on staff right like, or i 've just
0: heard a great idea in fifteen minutes, right. having them in the room they yeah, ex- exactly is gonna be super
1: exactly helpful. so it's uh, you know I'm, there's conflicting right. trains of thought about about that whole
0: thing right, and that 's the thing like you had mentioned, which we 've heard before, but you'd mentioned it and highlighted it for us right now, is that ideas are dime a dozen yeah. everybody 's got ideas, and you, it may be a great idea, mm-hmm. but somebody else out there has it and or It's the execution of the idea that really makes is the payoff so uh, i think that being too beholden to Mm -hmm. these specific ideas especially going into chicago fire having ideas and and pitching these ideas uh, is something that you know if you want a job and you get enough ideas even if you have one or two I, I hesitate to say stolen because mm-hmm. it's technically their show or right. whatever. Or even it's a, it's a portion of idea because I doubt right. it's going to be a wholesale thing. Like they're going to take your script, put right. their name on it right? And try to oh, sell yeah, it. Yeah. You know, change a couple character names and sell it. Yeah. it, it, it if anything, it's maybe, you know, right. it just bleeds in a little right. bit here and right. there. Like, oh, the scene of something happens. Or, yes, yes. Um,
1: yeah, I can see that happening on a, on a, on a less nefarious level right. where it's more unconscious and it's, you know, a month after that meeting, right. and
0: you're like, oh, you know, what if we did a thing, that, I can't remember where I heard this before, yeah. but what if, and, it, and it's less, oh, we're gonna steal that. Right, Yeah, which can't happen, and it sucks, but right. that's part right. of, it's the cost of doing business. It is, speak, it is, and,
1: and really, and I, I mean, and I say this to the, to the beginning aspiring writers out there, that the more you work, the more ideas you're gonna have. Yeah. That like, if that's your only idea, yeah. Something's wrong. Right, like you should have another one for another project the next day. That right. kind of thing. Like, don't don't put all your eggs in that one basket. Of this is what I'm going to hinge my career on. Right. It's just one idea? You know, it's your writing is about you, like all the
0: ideas you have. Right, not just one thing. And I mean, we all as writers have to pay tribute to other writers as well. Like mm-hmm. saying, um, uh, "Copperhead is like Deadwood in space." Well. Right. I'm not saying you stole whole whole right. you no, know, no. pieces of, of of dead wood, but I mean the mm-hmm. the, the overarching theme. I mean, you know, something in there may have come subconsciously. Sure, totally. A you know, little I mean, bit. I mean, that's what what tropes are, what
1: archetypes absolutely. are, and, and, so and all of that. now. Do you it's, it's owe all you know,
0: to... David Simon a bunch of money right. <laughs> or you know David Milch? <laughs> David Milch. Sorry, <laughs> David Milch a bunch of money. I mean, it's it's one of those things right. where right. Uh, you know uh, every. There are very few original, truly, wholly original right. ideas. Totally, totally. We're all influenced by yes. the amalgam of things yeah. we of things. Although we I, I will see, say, right? this,
1: this is funny, this just happened recently, I do get the heartache and frustration of sure. of seeing an idea you had get done. Uh, Mark Wade, one of my favorite comic book writers, announced a new book recently called Captain Kid about a middle-aged man who can turn into a teenage superhero which is the reverse of Shazam, who's a a little kid who turns into a grown-up superhero, which is an idea I had years ago and I've never gotten off my ass and done anything with, but I loved it because so many comic book fans these days are middle-aged men, for better or worse. So that wish fulfillment to be a, a teenager again and have superpowers on top of it, I thought was brilliant. And obviously so did Mark, and he's getting his to market while I have never literally written a single word about it. And that's one of those ideas where I'm like, well, I can't do that now. I could do it maybe five years from now. Right. But to do my own take on that right now, they're too similar. It's such a specific idea. Sure. And I get it. But I don't think Mark there's no way he stole it from me. It's just right. a matter of he got there first. He he beat me to the punch there. Sure. Uh, so I get that. But I have other ideas. And and every writer should have other ideas.
0: And you just say, okay, well, I'm going to focus on this other thing now. Yeah, most writers I know have too many ideas. Like There's too many ideas that you have time to actually write.
1: Yes, yes, there's that too. Exactly, exactly. That's a whole other challenge is of focusing on one thing at a time.
0: Right, right. I wanted to ask you what your writing process is like. I don't know Mm -hmm. how uh, accurate, uh, I think it's, Wikipedia was, but mm-hmm. it's like you're very regimented in sort of your writing process, you uh-huh. early start, that kind of thing. What is your writing process like when
2: you sit I'm, down?
1: I'm pretty, uh, and I mean I think this goes for comics and television now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean TV's a little different because with TV you don't always have the schedule you want. Uh, on TV you know you're in a writer's room generally and then when you're off to script your showrunner may want you to come into the office and write at the office. Or you may be allowed to write from home, or you may have to go into the office and be in the room for the morning, and then you get to write in the afternoon. Uh, but left to my own devices, I'm I'm a morning person. I like to wake up early. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm on a, a fairly tight deadline, I'll just literally roll out of bed, go right to my desk at 6 a.m. and start writing, and I'll write to lunch, take a little break at lunch. Sometimes just eat at my desk if I'm on a roll, and then write through to uh, you know maybe. Four between four and six, I'll wrap it up for the day. Uh, I'm.
2: That's quite I'm the, a day.
1: Yeah, it is. But then it gives me the evening to relax with my wife and hang out, and uh, and with comics in the same way. Uh, I'll usually start in the morning and and go. I mean, with comics at this point, I'm usually fast enough I can write a script in a day or two, so I can write a comic over a weekend if I'm on staff on a show. Uh, but I'm also I write. I love talking to other writers about this too. Um, I write a vomit draft. I I write forward, just Mm. get my thoughts down, doesn't matter if it's terrible, I can make it better later. Um, Other writers I know will, they'll write the teaser of the episode or or they'll just go scene to scene to scene and that scene they'll spend a day on a two page scene whereas Mm. I'll spend a day on an act uh, or more. but the difference is when they're done with that scene, they're done with it. They don't revisit it. They don't right. rewrite it. It's, it's done. Um, and, and on Zoo this season, we co-wrote a lot. They paired us up. Uh, and it was always interesting because my co-writer was, was that kind of writer, where he would write in order, but when a scene was done, it was done. Right. Whereas I'd be like, oh yeah, I finished my half, or I got my first pass of my half done, meaning my half of the script. And he'd be like, what are you talking about? How can you be that fast? I'm like, well, it's terrible. I have to go right. in and make it better now, right. but I have a draft. Right. And it just helps me. Uh, one of my favorite writers, the the late Stephen J. Cannell, had, mm. had written, and he's not the only person who's made this advice, but uh, allow yourself to be bad. If, if you're trying to be brilliant every time you write, like that's going to be a roadblock. You're not right. going to get anything it's too done. too much pressure. Let yourself be bad, knowing yeah. you can go back and fix it later. And I've really taken that to heart uh, so that... I can be bad in that first draft. Just get the rough shape. I mean with television, you're usually working from an outline, and so the outline, that my first draft of the script is just fleshing out the outline. It's just writing what's in the outline and putting in dialogue, even if it's the most on the nose, terrible dialogue, just so I know where it is. And then I'll go back through and okay, let me dig into this scene uh, and and make it really good, uh, or as good as I can. And with comics, I follow that kind of that same approach. But I I like to write. Given my druthers, I like to write at home. I like to write in silence. I write at my desk. I mean, I know writers who like to write lying on their couch with their laptop (laughs) like this, upside down. I swear to God. Um, Wow. Yeah, their chiropractor is gonna (laughs) make a killing at some point. Um, I know writers who love to write in the coffee shops, Mm -hmm. or they love. uh, I know writers who like to write with the TV on in the background because they like background noise. Uh, I'll listen to music if I have to, if it's to drown out something else. Like if I'm writing at the at at work in my office and there's stuff going on, I put my headphones on and I'll write to soundtracks or scores, something without dialogue, mm-hmm. um, or I'll just write to like the sound of rain, just something else to drown out right, other right. sounds. Uh, but yeah, but I'm I'm pretty regimented, I guess, in in the way I, I like to have a schedule. I'm a creature of habit.
0: Now. Uh- I wrote, wrote, jotted down a note, and mm-hmm. it says half episode. So okay. when you said you co-wrote an episode of Zoo okay. with another writer, and you wrote half the episode, or mm-hmm. they wrote half the episode, you just cram them together. How it does that work? Kind of,
1: yeah. We, it would. I mean, it's all broken in the writers' room mm-hmm. collaboratively sure. with, with most of the other writers. Right, right, right. So then, once it's broken and it's up on the board, and all your beats are up on the board, and on Zoo we did uh, a teaser and four acts, so five acts basically. Uh, and then we would just look at it. And there's two ways to divide up a script. Some writings, some writer teams will divide it up by storylines. Mm. One person will write the A storyline throughout the whole episode. Other person will write the B and C storyline, that kind of thing. Uh, others just divide it up in like. On our show, generally, the teaser and Act One tend to be longer. So one person will write teaser and one. The other person will write Acts Two, Three, and Four and then there comes a day where we just combine them. Mm. One of us will send the other one the script, put it in a final draft document, print it out, and then we go sit and read it, and take notes and give each other notes, and we'll either just do a second pass together, sitting in the same room, talking it through, or we'll divide up again and go back over our respective halves, incorporating the notes we each had for each other, and then put it together again, and then go through it. but that's, that's the way that we worked this year, generally, was uh, just literally each writing half the episode. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it's, it's cool, and uh, it's fun. And then during, uh, during prep for the episode, you know, we'd each be on the calls as, as much as we could, but uh, there's a thing called a tone meeting where mm. you talk through the episode to the director, and we would just tag out on that, where my co-writer would tone the first half of the script, and then I jump in and tone the second half, and yeah, it's it's
0: it's all good. It works. Hmm. Um.
2: Uh,
0: going back to Zoo, mm-hmm. the first season was thirteen episodes. Yes, and I had seen that you had as a, you were a staff writer on the first season. Correct? I was actually a story editor on the first story, season. and then I'm an exec story editor. Yes, second, okay. two, second season. Um, but as even as a, a story editor mm-hmm. on the first season. Uh, you wrote three. Mm-hmm. You wrote or wrote three of the thirteen. Mm-hmm. That's is that usual? That's that, seems that like was a lot. We, had, we had a very small staff okay. the first
1: year. We had Zoo was an unusual show. People in the industry's eyes bug out when I tell them this. We had four showrunners, which is very unusual. Yeah,
0: that <laughs> we had <laughs> Wait, at the same time, or were they like no no, no, no go four, four the... guys? Here's how it worked. Okay. Uh,
1: four guys are in a partnership called Midnight Radio. Mm-hmm. That's their producing company. Uh, it's. Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec, who are writing partners. They always write together. A third guy named Scott Rosenberg, Mm -hmm. who has written, he created Life on Mars with them, and uh, Happy Town, and October Road. The three of them worked on those shows together. Fourth guy is Jeff Pinkner, who worked on Fringe, and Lost, and Alias. Uh, So before Zoo started, the four of them formed a company together, and they sold Zoo to CBS. And the four of them wrote the pilot, and then Technically, all four of them were showrunners on the show. The way that worked was in the first season, Andre kind of dealt with production. He went to New Orleans when they shot the pilot. He was there for that. He was the one hiring the department heads and and all the production stuff. That left. Jeff Pinkner was kind of the day-to-day showrunner in the room. He was there with us most days, breaking story. Uh, Josh Applebaum was in the room frequently but not constantly. So he would come in and chime in on the way the show was being driven. Uh, Scott Rosenberg would do passes on the scripts. So we would turn in the script and it got to a point where we would just turn the script in to Scott directly. He would do a pass and then that's what got sent to the network and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a, a different way to run a show, but each everybody had their yeah. own little kind of fiefdom. At least um, it
0: got compartmentalized. It
1: was compartmentalized, and these guys are all like really good guys and really good friends. Okay. So when they disagreed, which was natural to happen, sure. it was all good nature. There was no political backstabbing or any right. of that stuff that happens when you have more than one showrunner. Um, the, uh, and then in post-production, when when cuts would come in and we'd have to sit in editing, that would be... That would be all of them, they'd all kind of tag in and out on that and whoever was around to to kind of shepherd an episode through post production. Um, and, and, and on, so we had the four showrunners and then there were just four writers in the writers room beyond that. We had Carla Kettner who was a co-EP who was kind of in charge when one of those guys wasn't there. Uh, and then there was uh, D Harris Lawrence who was also a co-EP. Brian O, who was a uh, supervising producer, and then me, uh, and then we had a writer's assistant. Um, so it was a very small room. So we each got. I wrote episodes. What did I write? Crap, I forgot now. Five, eight, and ten, and eight. I only. I co-wrote that with Scott because oh. Scott was going to write that on his own, and he had a baby. And. <laughs> Which he knew was happening, but he right. thought that, he's like, oh, it's a baby, I can still write the right. episode, and then he realized, I can't write this episode.
0: They can't walk yet, i so,
1: Exactly. Yeah. So so I got drafted to, to pitch in and yeah. help him write that. Uh, so yeah, it was a very, the advantage of having a really small room is that like, everybody in that room is expected to contribute a lot. Yeah, uh, sure. I've been lucky in, in the shows I've been on um, as, a, as a lower level writer, each of those shows, the, the room was small enough that everybody was expected to contribute 110% and right. everybody had a voice i've heard of big network shows with writers rooms of 10, 12, 13, 15 right. people where the lower level writers don't speak right. they probably don't get a script yep. they're just kind of there and and i've right. been super lucky to not have to have experienced that <laughs> yeah no that's great. And, and this season we made a couple writing changes we we a couple new writers joined so the writers room is a little bigger uh uh, but but yet at the same because we're co-writing I still wrote uh, I co-wrote three six and ten this year so I still have three script assignments but they were all co-written mm-hmm. um, and it's great because I mean it theoretically takes you half as long you can co- write half a script right. in a couple days uh, but yeah it, 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 it was it's still not a huge room right. so everybody's still working a lot
0: right and and just to clarify mm-hmm. again when you say you a uh, co wrote script in in a couple days. Uh-huh. This is after all this this, the, this is after the
1: episode story, has been broken did, and, yeah you, yeah. Yes, you, this you, is after they've said this is even after the outlines written. Right, so this absolutely. is when they've said you go off and you write your script now. Right. And I mean last on last year I literally wrote a draft of episode 10. We were kind of running behind at that point. I wrote a draft in a day. Wow. And this, this is after this is this sure. is based on the outline, you know, so the story was broken. And it was not a good draft. It was a draft that, so that we could have something to send to production so they didn't have to prep off of an outline. I gotcha. So that's it was right. they had a script knowing that the shitty dialogue in this script, it's all right. going to get better. This is just so you know what the scenes right. are, what locations you have to scout. Uh, it, it's not unheard of for productions to prep off of an outline, mm. but that's really a last resort. I, I, would, I would have rather give them a crappy first draft knowing sure. that these locations are going to be the same right. and the the nuts and bolts of the scenes are the same it's just the writing is sloppy uh, so they can at least start their pre-production and, and have that,
0: that time absolutely and I think also just from the production standpoint uh, a script even a mediocre one mm-hmm. still has like you said the nuts and bolts of what right. you need whereas right. with, with uh, an outliner sometimes you have to make your own interpretation of how long this is going to play yes. how important yes. this is exactly. where in a script you can actually see exactly exactly. so yeah um uh Have you ever had a mentor? And if so, who
1: was it? Yeah. I mean, I've had a a few. Um, In the the writer's workshop, Mm -hmm. we were paired with two mentors. We had a a mentor who was a writer, a working writer, and a mentor who is uh, uh, an exec. And and I was paired with a woman named Lisa Ruse at Warner Brothers, uh, who was great. You know, she would... I mean, we're not in touch a lot, um, but she's there if I need her, and... She was really helpful in the workshop, reading my specs and giving me notes, and you know, prepping for meetings and all that. It's kind of ironic that I went to the Warner Brothers workshop and have never actually worked on a Warner Brothers show, right? Because <laughs> Ringer was technically Warner Brothers co-owned it, but it was technically a CBS production for CW. Uh, so I've never really worked with the Warner Brothers execs uh, in in my time in television. Uh, uh, and, and then there was a guy I met, a guy named Joe Henderson, um, who had come through the workshop a year or two before me, Uh, and he wasn't my formal mentor but he and I really hit it off. He had written, he's a big comic book nerd, and he had just coincidentally we had each written a story that appeared in the same comic, an issue of Witchblade from Top Cow. Okay. And uh, I was like, wow, that's that Joe Henderson guy. And So I reached out to him and we hit it off. So he was always there if I had questions about, oh, I'm going on this meeting, what have you heard about this guy and that sort of thing. And I mean, those are. I consider. I mean, there's a lot of writers I've worked with who are higher level than me, and whose brains I pick. Um, I, I hesitate to name people because I'm afraid I'll lose. I'll leave somebody out, right? <laughs> no, offend no, no, them. But but there's. It's it's and, and I find I think that that most writers in this town are happy to share their experiences with with somebody uh, who's up and coming, somebody who, who's aspiring. Uh, you know, as, as, as long as you're not, as long as they get that you're serious about it, right. that you want to talk to them about the business and the craft and not just gossip about, like, in that episode of X-Files, why'd they do this? <laughs> like, you know, that <laughs> right. that, that you, you really, you, you want, their time is valuable, so sure. you don't want to waste their time, It it should be about uh, business-related stuff, um, not just uh, gossip or industry insider stuff, Right. You know? But in, in, in these, these programs that, that, that people go through, I, I think, obviously I only know firsthand from Warner Brothers, but they will pair, they'll get you a mentor, somebody pair you with someone who's, right. who's, who has volunteered for that kind of thing.
0: Right. Um, there's some fun questions coming up, but before we jump into that, I did want to go back quickly and talk about pitching. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that a lot, again, writers being generally very sort of solitary, Right. Right. So th- it's not necessarily an innate skill to right. basically be a showman mm-hmm. or showwoman, I guess this case may be, uh, and basically ex- talk about your script, present right. your script in the right. most positive way, with, yeah. with a great attitude and mm-hmm. energy, because this is the 18th pitch they've seen that week. Yes. Yep. Uh, what are some of your advice? Some of your, do you have any specific stories of good uh, pitches, bad pitches? Hmm.
2: Let's see.
0: I
1: one of the best pitchers I've seen is one of my zoo bosses, Josh Applebaum. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all all the guys are great, but Josh especially is just a super energetic, um, vivid storyteller. So whether he's literally pitching an idea to write or he's just recounting something that happened to him over the weekend. Uh, it's always, you're on the edge of your seat. He's, he, he gets up and he walks around the room and, you know, gestures, and it, and it's... it's uh, He's just fantastic. I mean, I, I can't... I can't imagine uh, somebody not buying something from him in the room uh, just based on the strength of his pitches just because he's so uh, demonstrative. And, uh... Yeah, and, and I don't even know... I don't think that's something you can teach. I think... Like I can't do that. I think I'm okay at pitching, but I I don't I can't I'm not in that league anywhere approaching that. And I don't think that's something that you can like I said that you can teach or that it's just something innate within Josh that that he is uh, just such a showman mm-hmm. um, and a natural storyteller in, in a verbal way. Um, the other end of the spectrum, I've heard of guys going in and pitching who literally will just stand there <laughs> with holding a piece of paper and just basically read. Right. Um, what I do. Uh, a, a guy I worked with on a ringer, a guy named Hank Chilton, who was uh, an upper-level writer on that show and who I've remained friends with, uh, was talking about pitching to me one day. We were, uh, and because he was talking, he was developing developing a pilot somewhere, uh, and he was talking about rehearsing his pitching. Literally, you mm-hmm. know, he would, uh, you know, you generally, I think most people write it out and then practice it, or you should at least. Um, and that's what Hank was doing. And I hadn't thought of that before. I hadn't really pitched anything formally before. Uh, and Hank was talking about, I think he had a rented office space somewhere, and he was pitching this thing over and over again, practicing it, practicing it, and it got to the point where somebody in the office next to him had run into him in the hall one day and was like, hey, good luck on that pitch. The guy's been hearing it (laughs) every day over and over. Uh, And it's good, like you want it to be, so so when I, the the one time I took a show out, uh, and sold it to a producer, but we didn't end up selling it to a studio, near death when I pitched it a dozen times. Um, I ended up, I wrote it out and then just practiced it. Made it so that it sounded natural. Mm -hmm. Um, You want it to sound conversational. You don't want it to sound like like something that has been written. And I would just keep it on my iPad and have it there to refer to. I got to a point where it wasn't 100% memorized. I don't think I could pitch it blind. But I, I had it there on my iPad so that I could... Just glance down at it to to keep my flow, and just pitch it conversationally, uh, and and with energy and uh, enthusiasm, uh, and and specifics. Like you wanna you wanna paint a picture, um, and that's why I also think it helps. This is another piece of pitching advice I got from a guy named Drew Goddard who wrote The Martian. Yeah, absolutely. Tons we of We've had Drew on the show. Oh yeah, Drew's awesome. Um, he had talked about having images with you. Like, I mean, I think he was talking about one of his when he was pitching his Spider-Man movie that he had done up almost on poster board, I believe. Image, like, and I think an artist had drawn them. Key images from, from the story he was pitching, so that he could have them. I don't know if he had them on an easel or I don't know what he did. Right. But, uh, so I took his advice when I pitched near death, and I didn't have them on poster board, but I had just like eight by ten images of uh, actors that I kind of cast. In the show, um, so that it would just give them a visual of, of who to envision when I was talking about a character, uh, and so I think any kind of visuals. I've heard of people selling movies just based on having like a fake poster made up of like, here's the movie poster, here's right. what it would look like, some incredible visual, and then from there it's just, you know, they're already hooked in. Um, so having visual aids, I think, helps as well. Right. Uh, I wouldn't go overboard with it, you know. It, I don't even know what to say, what how to judge what overboard would be. But, uh, you know, your pitch should be 20 minutes or so verbally. Like, right. get it in that range, I think. Any more, and you might lose them. You might prattle on too long. Right. Any less, and it might not be as fleshed out as it should be. Um, there's also a, just in terms of pitching a television show, I got this and I think it still holds, it, it's pretty, one of the studios had had a, a, a kind of a format they wanted you to pitch in. And I, let's see if I can remember it off the top of my head. I think it was you start with a teaser, so you pitch them a scene, basically. Which should be the teaser from your pilot, just the most gripping, involving sure. moment. Whether it, uh, and I think what I did is it, it didn't even necessarily happen at the beginning of the beginning of the episode, it was just uh, a, 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 a hooky scene. So you pitch them a teaser, then you back off from that and pitch them the the kind of the world. Here's the world the show takes place in. Here are the characters that inhabit this world. Then you go into, here's what the pilot would look like. And then from there, here's what the series would look like. Like here's how this is an ongoing series. Whether it be like, oh, it's procedural episodes or, and, and for a procedural, I think you sometimes pitch a few like sample episodes, just like a log line. In this episode, they investigate a counterfeiting ring, run out of a Dairy Queen, or you know, just <laughs> shit like that, just, just, just to show the the variety within the show. And that you can yeah continue it on. with right. enough story right. there. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then, then you do some kind of wrap up at the end. Right. Uh, so that's kind of like the order of information that I try to follow if I'm pitching something. Um, and then it's just a matter of making all those pieces compelling.
0: And, and you know, don't waste a word, make it all matter, I guess. Right, right. Um, now onto some fun stuff I read somewhere that you're a big fan of 80s detective shows and you already mentioned Stephen J. Cannell oh yeah yeah uh, which is your favorite and why
1: uh, I guess this is more of a 70s but uh, did it run in the 80s at all I think it wrapped up in the 80s so it qualifies Rockford Files okay. is one of my all time favorite shows Magnum P.I. is another one uh, but but most of the Stephen J. Cannell shows I really like uh, whether it's um, uh Rockford, Wise Guy, mm-hmm. uh, Greatest American Hero, Twenty One Jump Street, all that stuff—I I eat that up. It's such a fun mix of character and right. and, and plot, and and uh, you know they're not too serious, but they're not too jokey. And right? Just in—I I just that's in my wheelhouse. I just love that stuff. Um, what else? Uh, boy, but yeah, it's mostly the candle stuff. I think those are.
0: Those are kind of my, the highlights of that era for me, I would say. Gotcha. Um, And then what show, any show in history, Mm -hmm. uh, would you like to have worked on? And why? Boy. Um, Hard to narrow down just one. But it would,
1: boy, whether it would be, hmm. I would probably, I I guess just uh, picking a name out of a hat, I would have loved to have worked on The Greatest American Hero. Uh, it's, it's, uh, are you familiar with that? Yeah, you know I'm absolutely, talking about? Uh, absolutely. Guy finds a superhero suit given to him by aliens, but loses the instruction booklet. Right. And he's teamed with an FBI agent uh, to fight crime and make the world a better place. And it was... It was William f- Cat. William Cat yeah. as the hero and Robert Culp as oh, yeah. the right. secret agent. Uh, and uh, Stephen Cannell created it. it uh, and it ran for three seasons. And it was just a ton of fun. It mm-hmm. had action. It had... Lots of humor, but heart, and and the characters were like super well drawn, and I I think it would, would and, and I, I think um, the guys who did the Lego movie were developing a, a, a take on it at right. Fox fairly recently. I don't know if it's if it's dead or alive, um, but um, uh, but yeah, I just think it's a great property, and I would have had a ton of fun if I was born. Twenty years earlier.
0: Yeah, that seems like actually a great mix blend of your. It is, yeah, it's it's, it's a perfect stew of everything I like. Yeah, Yeah.
2: Um,
0: and uh, uh, what shows now are you watching, Mm -hmm. or what are some of your favorite things? On TV now, boy. Okay, this is the answer I always blank
1: out on. Literally, when I go to meetings because this gets asked, I have to like I I make a list before I go because I (laughs) always like space on things. Um, What am I watching now? Uh, Well. Unreal, I believe, just came back uh, last night. That's the uh, the behind-the-scenes at a Bachelor-type reality show on Lifetime. Oh, I haven't seen Um, it. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, The second season just started up again. So it's a behind-the-scenes drama at a Bachelor-type reality show. So it follows some of the... People appearing in the reality show, as right. well as the producers and and stuff behind the scenes. Uh, no, is it is, is it scripted? It's scripted. Or no, it's scripted oh, okay, okay. It's it's uh, Marty Noxon uh, oh, yeah, is the showrunner, okay. and um, and it was also co-created by I think somebody who worked on I don't know it was The Bachelor or Big Brother or somebody who worked on a reality right. show, and then I think wrote a book. Uh, but it, it's fantastic, and you mentioned your wife works on reality television, right. so you guys would probably love it. Yeah. It's, uh, it. It's just great, great kind of soapy, but really edgy, and it, it's probably Lifetime's like Critical Darling. Uh, it, it will hopefully break out for them. Huh. Um, that's really good, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I just started watching the second season of Happy Valley on Netflix, mm-hmm. um, just watched the season premiere. We, my wife and I both love the first season, and so I'm really glad to have that back um uh better call Saul. I know that just ended, but we right. were behind, so we haven't finished it yet. Um love that as well. Um uh what else? We devoured uh The People vs. OJ on mm. FX. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was amazing. Um boy, I also really enjoyed and I literally haven't men- met anybody who actually watched it. Um uh Oh, crap, No, I'm blanking on the name. What's the name? Oh, Happen Leonard on Sundance, I No, I, I have heard of it. It's, it's based on... It's James Pure... Wait. Damn it. There's two guys I always get mixed up. And I forget which one this is. The guy who was on The Following, who played the serial killer on The Following. Is that James Purefoy? I think so. Okay. It's him and uh, Michael... Uh, the guy who played Omar on The Wire. Uh, It's those two guys, they're ex-con buddies getting into trouble in the South in the 80s, and it's based on a series of novels and short stories by a crime writer named Joe Lansdale. It was six episodes on Sundance, and it's just them getting involved in trying to find loot from a bank robbery that had sunk to the bottom of a river and it's just them with a bunch of other criminals and there's lots of backstabbing. It's a little, you know, if you like Justified or Elmore Leonard type stuff, Right. it's right. in that same neighborhood. Uh, and it just got picked up for a second season as well. Uh, but it's off everybody's radar, but it shouldn't be. It's really, really good. Huh. Um. Boy, what else? Uh, network, um, it's hard to remember because everything's finished now. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, uh boy. Yeah, see? I'm I'm still drawing a blank.
0: We've been out of the the staffing meeting game for a Yeah, time. exactly. That, <laughs> for that, that, a that's not updated yeah, list. Yeah. Exactly, exactly.
1: But but those are some of the highlights of stuff we've been watching
0: recently. Uh, and what are you reading yeah. comic wise if you're if you're reading anything? Yeah,
1: I am. Um I love I always read anything Brian Vaughn writes, so sure. I'm I'm loving saga and paper girls. Oh. Um Uh, I love Southern Bastards. Uh, Most of what I read is Image. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I love uh, what Mark Waid and Chris Somney are doing on Daredevil. Or not Daredevil. Sorry, they were on Daredevil. On Black Widow. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just took that over. That's really fun. What else? Uh, I read the controversial uh, Captain America issue by Nick Spencer. Mm. And... um, the artist I'm blanking the name of, uh, which I really thought was great. Um, what else am I reading? There's a book an image called Birthright by Josh Williamson and uh, another artist whose name I'm forgetting uh, that I really enjoy. Um, Greg Rucka and yeah. Justin Greenwood on Stumptown is are, are, are really good. I love their book. Um, I like all of what Ed Brubaker does. I read most all of his stuff. Um, Velvet's a particular favorite. Uh, I think that's about it. I don't read much Marvel and DC superheroes anymore. Uh, I just, I think I OD'd on them right. in my <laughs> in my youth. Uh, right. So it, it's really kind of creator-owned image kind of stuff is, is where it's at for me these days.
0: Cool. Um, and uh, lastly, do you have any advice for aspiring writers out there or is there anything else that you wanted hmm. to share offer
2: of?
1: Yeah, boy. I'm trying to think of some catch-all advice. Um, <laughs> I, I would just, I mean, just write a lot, read a lot, watch a lot of TV. Uh, and, and I think I would I would read and write, I'm sorry, read and watch a mixture of the stuff you're really interested in, kind of that genre that you want to be working in, but also like broaden your horizons a little bit so that you don't kind of get tunnel vision or or get too focused on on one thing like you you want to be able to to steal and, and get influences from from other other genres uh i would say if you're if anybody listening is going to apply to any of the workshops uh and write a spec um write something current but not too current like for instance I, I think a lot of them, you know, it has to be a show currently on the air, something in right. production. Happen Leonard, the show I just mentioned to you, despite it being a brilliant show, I wouldn't spec that. Because as you demonstrated, no one's heard of it. Like, right, like right, right, right. That was, it'd be hard. But at the same time, I wouldn't spec Supernatural. Because that show's been on so long yeah. that, that I think it's it's oversaturated in terms of people speccing. Um, so you want to find something in the middle there, that that people are aware of, but that hasn't been specced to death.
0: And also a storyline that hasn't been used in there, what, 20, 18 years of Right, exactly, exactly.
1: And and when you find the show that you're gonna spec, study it. Like, if you can find scripts from that show online, which Mm -hmm. you probably can, do that. If you can't, or even if you do, watch it. I was, uh, in addition to, I think I I had found, because I wrote a burn notice spec to get into the Warner Brothers program, and I think I had found a burn notice, Script online somewhere, but I also watched a bunch, and I literally—I think there were two episodes that I watched and timed. I would literally sit there with a, a my phone on the timer setting, so I could time how long each act was, how many acts they did, because that varies by mm-hmm. network, uh, and then try to tailor the length of my acts in my script to kind of what their format was. Right, and it helps you. It, it, i would outline it too. I would how many scenes are in an act generally, and and just, I would watch it and take notes. Just write one sentence about what each scene is. Oh, Michael sits with Sam and they find a case and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So you could kind of, just writing it out and seeing it on a paper, I think helps you uh, absorb it and, and just live in those rhythms a little more. So really do your homework on the show you're specking. I, right. You know, it, it sounds like it's tedious and busy work, but I think it, it would pay off when you're writing that spec. Absolutely. Uh, and, and then also in terms of specs, specs are good for these programs, but uh, for nothing else really. Like everything else for staffing, everybody wants to read a pilot. Right. So I think in your arsenal you should have a, a good current spec and a great pilot. Right? Uh, you know, those are the two things I would focus on.
0: I have heard on rare occasions, mm-hmm. I think Vina Sood from The Killing had mentioned mm-hmm. once, that she loves a pilot, mm-hmm. but on occasion, to see if she can write in someone else's voice, mm-hmm. she'll request a spec if they have sure, one. Sure, sure, yeah, but that's, that's, it, it, that's it, rare. It, it is rare. It does happen. It
1: does happen. Uh, my friend Joe Henderson, who I mentioned earlier, is the showrunner on Lucifer, hmm. and he is somebody who will read specs for that reason. He wants to see how you write in someone else's voice. Right. How you can, how you write in the voice of a show. Uh, what I think is smart. Like sure. it, it, to me, you you want to see that. Uh, right. So, but but I think. Those are the exceptions. Yeah, the the general tide is people wanting to 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 read an original pilot to right. see your original voice. Yeah, and I think part of that is because there's so many shows on the air that chances are you're going to get a speck of a show you've never watched before. Right. Then it's hard to tell. Like, is, is this a voice of the, the show? Exactly? or not? Right. And, and that that's what's tough. Yeah. Uh, with these workshops and programs, they have readers they hire who mm-hmm. are kind of like my burn notice. I think went to the reader who was familiar with Burn Notice, right. and, and so there they can kind of cover their bases. Right, and I right. know Warner Brothers has narrowed, they have a like a pull-down menu on a their list, site, yeah. a list of acceptable shows to spec, so right. they can help keep control of that, because yeah. there's so many out there.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and actually there's a question that I meant to ask you sure. uh, that I didn't, but as a successful writer working in both comics and TV, mm-hmm. um, what are a few things that you know now that you wish you had known when you were just getting started at? Hmm. Boy. Um. Mm-hmm.
1: I think with comics, I, I wish I would have trusted artists more, mm. trusted the art in the story. Uh, I think my comics now have much less writing in them, dialogue rather, than they used to, only because I've gotten more confident in like, this panel, this can tell the story. Sure. I don't need, to have somebody saying, "Oh my God," it, the, <laughs> the, the ex- surprised expression on this character's Says face is enough. Right. Uh, and with TV, um, I think, boy, let's see. I think it's a matter of uh, of just writing the, the the scene, keeping the scene short. I think you know, it, it, getting in. Late into a scene and cutting out early uh, is something that always works mm-hmm. and and uh, I probably didn't do as much earlier in my career as, as I know to now um, and 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 just in terms of being in a writer's room uh, this is a little off the subject but but it, it's helpful as a low-level writer when you're in there if somebody pitches an idea whether it's somebody beneath you, I mean, in terms of the, the ladder the hierarchy or, right. or the hierarchy, or somebody above you, if it's the worst idea in the world and you're a low-level writer, you don't need to shoot it down. Let somebody else shoot it down. Mm-hmm. You're there to prop things up and to help make right. things work. Uh, you don't need to, to poo-poo an idea. Uh, and if you do, because there are times where it may be just you and another writer in the room, and then if they have an idea that you really think doesn't work and you're sure it doesn't work, Frame it in such a way that not, I think it's terrible, but I'm just trying to think are we going to get the note X? Uh, is the mm-hmm. network going to think that this reason? And it's right. just a little more diplomatic way of, of phrasing it. Uh, right. And I think I've avoided that bullet, hopefully. I don't think I've done that even when I was starting out, right. but I think it's still worth mentioning too. Right. To, it's just uh, uh, to just kind of, no matter how diplomatic a room is, you want to know your place and let. Let the people higher up be the ones to shoot things down. You want to be the one to build them up and, and right. be the supportive voice.
0: I've also heard on occasion, even from showrunners, mm-hmm. who say who are open to mm-hmm. uh, comments and critiques from from uh, you know sure, newer writers, staff writers, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. Uh, say, I don't care mm-hmm. if they. Uh, Shoot down an idea, mm-hmm. but they better have uh, something better. They right. better have yes. an answer. To how do yep. they fix it? Yep. If you don't, then yep. keep your mouth shut. Unless yep. you have, yes. you know, don't just say yes. this sucks, yep. but this sucks. But how about this? Right. What about right. if we do? You know, yep. you better yep. have a solution. For Either it.
1: find a way to fix it, or right. find a, or, or or a, a substitution, idea. something right. else that we can do instead. Right. Otherwise, yeah. Yeah. You're, it's pointless. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't be. Don't, don't be the
0: naysayer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can follow Jay on Twitter. Uh, it's Jay Ferber, but it's J J A Y last name F-A-E-R-B-E-R, so it's at Jay Ferber. He also has a website, jayferber.com, which... Is, is not terribly updated, but uh, <laughs> there, there's, there's but stuff the website, up there. Yeah. Uh, and a Facebook fan page, mm-hmm. uh, so they can follow you on Facebook. Uh, thanks for so much for coming and chatting with us today. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Yeah, it's been awesome. Um, and there's still a lot of comic bookie questions and other questions we want. we'll have to, <laughs> to, to, to tackle at a different time. Great. Um, and uh, so, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Awesome, awesome, man. Thank you. And thank you all for listening.